He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross." From the letter of Paul to the Ephesians in the name of the Father, or the Colossians in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Maybe all that unity theme got me thinking it was Ephesians when in fact it was Colossians. In the years following World War I, the so-called war to end all wars, does anybody even remember that? Europe continually destabilized by both the post-war ambitions of Germany and the continual ambitions of the communist East, and even in Italy, the rise of fascism. A certain bishop in Rome by the name of Pius XI released an encyclical to establish this Sunday, the last Sunday of the year, and the Sunday prior to the first Sunday of Advent as Christ the King Sunday. That's the origin of Christ the King Sunday. It was subsequently adopted not only by Anglicans, but also by Lutherans and Methodists and many others uh, on down through the decades, especially because in the ecumenical lectionaries, like the one we use, the kingship of Christ stands out as prominent in the readings. Did you catch all that? In this encyclical, Pius reminded his readers that the manifold evils in society were caused by the fact that the majority, he says, of human beings had thrust Jesus Christ and his holy law out of their lives. They had thrust Jesus Christ and his holy law out of their lives. And not only, he says, out of their lives, but out of both private affairs and politics. Sound familiar? Okay. Against the claims of many with regard to the prospects for a lasting peace following that war, he claimed that the only prospect for peace was this, submission to the rule of the Savior Jesus. And while making this claim that political leaders must submit to the rule of Christ for there to be any meaningful peace, his further claim is one that I want to focus on this morning. And that was to his own church, to Catholics alone, that if they would merely revere Christ the King, the needs of that day would have been ministered to, and a remedy would have been offered to the plague which infects society. The church in every age has had a dilemma placed before her, the very same place before Jesus on the cross, between two criminals while rulers mocked him, saying, you saved others, save yourself. The first, the unrepentant, the rulers, the criminal who does not repent, who even as that one man is dying, thrust Jesus out of his life at the very end, saying, save yourself and us. In other words, church, we are told, seek your own preservation. Seek the preservation of society exactly as it is. 
Do not seek salvation in some kind of pie-in-the-sky manner. Preserve your life. The other, however, from the other side of the cross, looks to Jesus, that innocent bearer of our sins, and says to the other, we deserve to die, we're here justly. But he says to Jesus, simply, remember me when you come into your kingdom. To ask to be remembered by the king when he comes into his kingdom is to ask for a place in his reign. Not to be a lowly subject, it's often how it's understood, but it actually means this, to participate in the glory that is his. This thief knows that in dying with Christ, in truly dying with Christ, unlike the other thief, he will be raised to eternal life an eternal life of glory in the kingdom in which his fellow cross-bearer will reign. His words betray a trust and a confidence in his kingship. Beloved, we have often been allured to believe that our prayers directed to Jesus must be prayers which ask merely that we would be preserved from an untimely death preserved from persecution, preserved from having to bear pain. And those are the more noble goals. What we often pray for is the preservation of our comfort, of our possessions, of our status, even our status as those condemned to die. Yet this is to thrust Jesus out of our lives, the same Jesus who asks us to forsake everything and follow him, the Jesus who must be king to us or nothing. That first sin in the garden was nothing if it was not a thrusting of the God of all out of the life of the garden. Sin consists in continually thrusting God out. To these, Paul makes an appeal in the letter to the Colossians. And that appeal is to look to the preeminence of Christ and not only proclaim his greatness, but to also say that God the Father has transferred us from the dominion of darkness in which even God is thrust out, to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom he says we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul speaks to the former alienation of the recipients who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We often don't understand the burden of being an alien. Um, go off text a little bit, but this weekend, one of my brother priests, who is himself an illegal alien, and a member of this diocese, spoke of the pain that he has experienced in the last few weeks, the worry that he has experienced over the last few weeks of not even being at home in your own country. 
And I wonder if maybe you felt that way, even in part, not being at home in your own country. If maybe you can have some empathy for that. But he says of the Colossians that they were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And that they were those whom Jesus has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present them holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul's tactic here rhetorically is this. Before appealing to the Colossians to remain steadfast to Christ, steadfast in faith, steadfast to him as their king, before asking them to refuse to thrust him out of their lives, to hold firmly to the conviction that they are a medicine to this world as the saints of God, he reminds them of the greatness of their salvation of how in Christ the King, they who were poor, alienated sinners without hope have now become the rich, the righteous, the recipients of an everlasting kingdom. Today, brothers and sisters, the church has been lulled into a kind of complacency, believing that society can be improved quite apart from Christ and his rule, And this shows not how irresolute we are in standing firm in the gospel. It simply shows how little we think of Christ himself. Friends, thinking and pondering and meditating upon Jesus himself in his person must again come to the fore in the church's mind again. We must again meditate upon and ponder the glory of the incarnate Son, preeminent over all things. And to this task, our minds will be set in the coming weeks as we think upon the King who has come into this world and who will come again. As we consider at Christmas the revealing of our salvation in his birth at Bethlehem, the revealing of the King of Kings as a tiny baby. We are drawn to consider the cost of our salvation, not just on the cross, but in the eternal Son of God becoming truly one of us, truly joined to our nature. You and I need to be reminded to think, to meditate upon a very simple question. And it's a question which I would encourage you to ask of yourself regularly. What would your life be like if it were not for the gospel? What would your life be like were it not for Jesus? Would it be different or would it be the same? And if it's the same, all I can say is that this is simply because Jesus is not your king. He may be someone else's, but he's definitely not yours. He may be the king for some, but not everyone. And if you seek salvation anywhere at any time, it is only rarely in Christ who is king. What would the world be like? What would your life be like if it were not for the coming of Christ to claim and proclaim 
his kingdom. The question before you is this today. Is there any remaining portion of your life that remains wholly yours? That remains devoid of the Lord's kingship? Any portion not devoted to his will? And why is that? For many today, they have been trained to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one to be called upon only in the most dire of circumstances. Only when truly needed, only in war, and only under duress. He is unconcerned with the banalities of this world and unconcerned with most of what we do. Well, that, friends, is a lie. It is a lie. But isn't it sort of reinforced with how we think about government in general? We call upon and curse the government only when we have a problem to be solved that is beyond us. And we don't even trust them to solve it. We look to government to solve just about every problem. And yet we forget that we are Christians. Our minds and hearts should be compelled only to care for what pleases the king. Only to be concerned with what brings him glory and honor. And that is to have honor and glory in all things. But back to the cross. To give Jesus Christ, the King of all, glory and honor, we must die. And we can die as the thief who says to him, save yourself and us. Or we can die as the thief who says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You and I have most certainly died. We have been put to death with Jesus by being baptized into his death. But for the Christian, this death is not a one-time occurrence in our lives. It is rather a daily, continual, and habitual death to sin and self-rule so that Christ may rule in us. May rule in us in glory. May rule in us exalted as king above all. And so I ask you, why have you not died? Why have you not put to death that which in you resists his everlasting kingship? May the Lord Jesus Christ rule in us in every way, both now and forever. Amen.